Welcome to the Simpleton Podcast. I'm here with Dr. Lori Johnson. How are you doing, Dr. Lori Johnson? I'm okay. I'm over my jet lag. I've been here for a week. I got back from Berlin recently, gave, giving a talk over there. So yeah, now I feel pretty good. <laughs> oh, that's great. Um, so I met you through the Catholic Worker Farm here in Kansas City. And we also have this friend in common who is one of your former students. You know, and some people with some also know Amanda Stevie or Amanda Pence. And Dr. Lori is a professor of political science at a at Kansas State major, you know, research institution. Uh, Dr. Lori, we're going to talk to you about converting to Catholicism, being a professor in a secular environment as a Catholic. And I also want to talk to you about what your work with your research, your work on the new right, your work with the Morin Academy and the Catholic Worker Farm. Then I have some personal questions I want to ask you about politics. Sounds good. Okay. So you are a convert. How did you, how did that happen? So I've been a Christian my whole life. I was raised first as a Methodist and then we, uh, my family became Presbyterians. Um, my dad all along the way was kind of like, I don't know, more like a rationalist deist type of Protestant. Um, and so there was this intellectual element that always kind of played into um, Christianity for me as I was growing up. But I met my um, now ex-husband in 90, in, yeah, well, sometime in the early 90s. We were married by 93, and somewhere along the way before we got married, I converted to Lutheranism because he was a Lutheran. Also, it was like a revelation going to the Lutheran church and um, experiencing liturgy for the first time and more reverence to um, communion and just, um, yeah, like, Liturgy was just amazing to me. I, I could see right away that that opened your ability to actually worship God instead of thinking about what comes next. You know, it gives you this framework where you can just get down to, you know, worshiping and contemplating God. So I really appreciated Lutheranism. Um, but then after my son was born, about three or four years after he was born, so that would be about 95 or 96, um, Tim and I both, or my ex-husband and I both like converted to Catholicism. And I sort of led that a little bit, but we both agreed. And the reason why was because for many people may know, like Lutheranism is kind of a short step from Catholicism in some ways, because um, it kept, you know, keeps a lot of the Catholic practices, right? Um, but the main reason really was practical, which is that both he and I were um, kind of tired of all the wrangling that Protestants do in their churches over um, sexual morality issues. Like for, for the last decade before our conversion, we'd been in one row after another about, you know, should ministers, should gay people be able to be ministers or you know, just various things like this. And and we were tired of it because, you know, regardless of what our position was, you know, on the, that issue, there's more to Christianity than those issues. And we felt like maybe there was some wisdom in taking those issues off the plate. In other words, that part of the attraction to Catholicism was literally that the church had already decided on some of those things and that it wasn't up to the lay people to decide. So so even if we disagreed on some elements of Catholic teaching, at least we weren't going to argue about it. 
right? <laughs> we could disagree without like feeling that it was our responsibility to somehow adjudicate it. When, when you became Catholic, did you find that that idea the Catholic Church was true, or did you feel like you just entered a new realm of, you know, different like little parties within the church? Um, both, you know, like quickly I realized that there is the, you know, the thing called the church. And that's what I've tried to cling to over the years, right? That is the source of knowledge and authority and kind of, for me, some peace, peace of mind. And the fact that in America, and I kind of attribute this to the American culture, we do have these little, you know, all these little like groups within Catholicism with the lay people who are more or less, in my view, Protestants, right? But they don't want to admit it, right? They disagree with the church about all sorts of things. They try to like, you know, basically have it their way. And um, I, I just have tried to steer clear of that. Um, again, realizing like I'm not I'm not in 100 percent lockstep with the church teaching, but I don't I don't see the point. I don't think it's productive to like splinter off and argue about things constantly. When you say you're not in 100 percent lockstep, does that mean like, um, by the way, when you said little Protestant groups, were you referring to kind of like liberal objections to the church teaching or were you kind of saying that about the liberal and the conservative critiques of like when you meet conservatives who are all complaining about the church? Oh, totally both. Yeah. Both. Like Great. here in Manhattan, we, we definitely met a lot of very conservative Catholics who didn't believe that our current Pope was actually the correct sure. one and, you know, who thought that the mass ought to be in Latin and, and stuff like that. And of course, there are the the very liberal ones as well who disagree with the moral teachings of the church and want to make make a lot out of that as well. So I would say both. And I just, yeah, try to ignore that. <laughs> Let me ask you two questions about Lutheranism, and then I'm going to follow up with this Catholicism idea. Um, in Lutheranism, isn't there like uh, like a Missouri Synod and like some other group of Lutherans? Where, yeah. which, which group were you with? We were both. We we went from the um, ELCA, which uh, the Evangelical Church, Lutheran Church of America, to the Missouri Synod on our way to Catholicism. And the issue with the Missouri Synod was, I mean, once we got there, it was like, oh, my gosh, we've entered the realm of pure absurdity because these people were arguing about whether you should sing like all four stanzas of the hymn. And some were like splintering off into like home churches because they wanted to do it the right way. And at that right. point, we were just, this is crazy. <laughs> so it helped push us into Catholicism. And my other question that I've been wondering is, do you think if Martin Luther was alive today that he would be Catholic? Um, I think Martin Luther never really intended for what happened to happen. He was a reformer who was trying to really address the church and get the church to see that some of its practices were corrupt. And, you know, when he nailed his 95 theses to the church door, I don't think he intended on there being like this, this split. But along the way, uh, he hardened his positions and then future reformers hardened their positions. But uh, yeah, like, I guess that's an interesting question. If he were alive today and he could see the splintering and all of the time that's been wasted on, 
you know, argumentation, not to mention the religious wars that were, you know, perpetrated by Protestants, you know, he would probably have to admit that Protestants have been no better at some of these things than, than Catholics. And maybe he tried to be a little bit more patient with the church, but I, I don't think he had any idea of what he was starting, if that makes sense. Right. So when you said that you may not agree with the church on everything, are you referring to like the magisterium or the catechism, or are you referring to just the way the church is run day to day? Or um, it seems like you value the church having a stance that doesn't need publicly debated. Yeah, I do. And, and yet there are some things I disagree with it on. It's, it's fairly specific things. So it's not the magisterium, but nevertheless, like uh, I guess one that I can mention is I think that the church needs to have a different stance on birth control and realize that there are differences amongst methods of birth control um, rather than holding to the strong stance that there is no legitimate form of birth control other than the rhythm method. Because in this country, I mean, probably 99% of Catholics therefore ignore the church position. And the church position on it is really quite like smart. It's really very knowledgeable about what, you know, it's one of those ingredients that's led to the culture of death, where we think that we can just sort of manipulate life, right? And we can do what we want when we want and have everything our way. So the critique of the mentality of birth control is really well worth learning about. But when you say in 2023, you have to practice the rhythm method. You're just asking for people to just not do it. So I know my listeners are going to really want me to call you out on calling it the rhythm method and not natural family planning. Okay, fine. And, and I, <laughs> being that there is a, maybe a real distinction that the Creighton method and things like that are are not what we used to make, what's often made fun of as the rhythm method. But um, I use the rhythm method to get pregnant. So you know, I know it works when you do it right. Okay. <laughs> Um, well, I won't, let's not go too far down that road, but I, I'm curious, uh, about that. Um, yeah, I'm meeting a group of Catholics now who don't even think that natural family planning is valid. They think that any attempt to limit the fertility is, um, is not optimal, yeah. you know? Well, I mean, when you think about it, they have a point that kind of maybe reveals the, the weakness in the church's position on it, because you can use all sorts of scientific methods to figure out when you're fertile and when you're not fertile. And so science enters into the process no matter what. So what is the difference between, you know, natural family planning with the use of scientific methods and other scientific methods of completely precluding fertilization? But I would just say that, you know, I mean, that basically means that we need to have a more nuanced position Right. When, when Laura hears this episode, she may make you uh, come back on to talk about this, but oh, no. uh, let's pass it over now. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I don't feel ready to get into that. Um, all right. So early on, so you are a Catholic convert professor at a, um, at a state school, yeah. right? Have, have you found difficulty in that? Has that ever been an issue? Not really. I mean, when I first converted, there were already like almost 50% of our faculty was Catholic. So of certainly there was no real big deal for me to be a Catholic within my faculty. As far as like beyond my department, 
there were some friends that I had that were just adamantly like both anti-religion and specifically anti-Catholic because they thought that Catholics, Catholics kind of are like religious plus in their view. And, and they just didn't understand why anybody would believe any of this. And I got pretty like, I guess, un, unpolitely razzed about this from some of the people that I knew in other departments. And I did have to let a couple of friendships go. Um, but I didn't have any like pushback of an institutional nature. Um, and I don't now. So it's, it, it really is not bad. Of course, the assumption is that your Catholicism is your private business. You know, it doesn't, it's not supposed to enter into your, into your workplace. Do you think though, that someone who say was starting out on an academic career right now, who was against abortion, had um, maybe the church's views on the trans issues and things like this, um, had every unpopular Catholic view, you know, um, do you think that they would have a lot of trouble going into academia and political science? I think it would matter whether they were extremely public about those views or not. Frankly, I mean, that's the honest answer. That is, if there was a candidate for the job that was highly qualified, and in my field, that might mean having five, six, seven publications before you even apply for a job. Wow. And they show a lot of promise, right? Um, and they're not making a huge public deal out of some of those positions, then I don't think it would matter. But I, it might matter if, if they were making a huge public deal out of that. Or if uh, their publications were about those positions. Yeah, that might be a little bit of a problem because it wouldn't fit in with the framework of, of what maybe like legitimate research was at a public institution and st and the reaction might be, well, if you want to do that kind of research, maybe you should be at a Catholic institution because there's this sort of liberal um, divide, right, in in public institutions that that says that your religion is your business, but but you should keep it private. Right. Um, and not bring it into this public domain where it can cause controversy. So there might be I mean, I don't know for sure, but there might be some like heartburn for that type of person. Yeah, we have had people in the department, including myself, who hold some of those types of views, but I don't, I'm not particularly strident about them personally, and that's the honest truth. And so it doesn't cause me trouble. Do you think that, um, I have been discouraging people from going into academia for years now, um, partly just because I think there's way too many PhDs printed with few to no positions to have with those degrees, right? Um, do you feel like it's harder to get into academia now than say when you did it? Yeah, it is. It's, it's harder because there's fewer positions and there's a trend in universities to backfill with adjuncts and with temporaries and non-tenure track people so that you know, a lot of universities are trying to keep things going by hiring people, but not giving them tenure. And why would you get a PhD and go potentially into debt or at least spend like six to seven years of your life getting training so that you can get paid, you know, $45,000 a year with no job security, right? So like, I, I think that we're heading towards a really, um, a sort of end of this system as we know it. I mean, it's going to take a while, but 
the economic trends and the political trends are very much against this um, sort of lifetime tenured job, which I think is essential for like professors to have intellectual freedom. And so like one of the things that we're seeing is people, there's less intellectual freedom at universities every year because, because tenure is going away and what does exist is not being taken seriously. It's being violated. So what do you think about, like, I've often, you know, probably the time I started paying attention to things was the 90s, you know, and I've always felt like there were these people who were public intellectuals who were not in academia, you know, and some of them like were in both academia, and not in academia. Like I'm thinking like Camille Paglia is someone who I remember a lot of people talking about. She was not respected because she was in academia. She was respected because she was exciting because she had interesting ideas, you know. Um, I feel like there are some libertarian thinkers who kind of were in this realm of public intellectual also. Um, my sense is that today in 2023, that the public intellectual sphere has gotten a lot bigger, you know, that a lot of them aren't professors, you know, yeah. that people are able to, in a sense, make a living in the world of ideas without going into academia. Does that way it feels to you or not? You're right that there's more public intellectuals. There's more people willing to come out there. Part of that is just because technologically it's so easy to do, right? Like you don't have to have some publisher or some like, you know, media person okay your engagement. You can just go ahead and do it yourself and then see if you get traction. Um, and so, and I think this has all been really good. I think it's been good for the public to the extent that they engage it. We have to remember that most of the public, the vast majority of the public does not engage at any level of this stuff that public intellectuals do. So we have to keep that in mind, but most of them are not close to making a living doing it. So it's a side hustle. It's, you know, I would, I would bet even some of the most prominent ones, right? are not primarily making their living from their media uh, income. They might be making it from other things like speaking engagements or, you know, merchandise or, you know, other, other, other aspects that roll off of that. But like, it's easier for me to try to get into this public arena because I am, I have a job basically already, you know, can we tell people uh, your podcast? I think you have two, right? Yeah, yeah. I, one of my podcasts is Political Philosophy, which is just, um, it's a audio version of my YouTube channel. Um, so you can get that content either by looking at Political Philosophy, the YouTube channel, which they Google like Political Philosophy, Dr. Lori Johnson. Uh, and then we have another podcast through the Morin Academy called uh, Dust Bowl Diatribes. And I do that with Spencer Hess, who's one of the two people that are running the JP2 farm in Kansas City. And who's been on our podcast. Everybody wants to meet Spencer. It's a couple podcasts ago. Spencer yeah, and Emily. It was, a, it was a great podcast. Um, now, while listening to some of your content, uh, somewhere I picked up that your early work in political science was critiquing classical liberalism. Is that right? Yeah, like up until fairly recently, really. I, I, I've written a book, um, two books on Hobbes. Then uh, one on Locke and Rousseau, and uh, one on Tocqueville and, and uh, democracy in America, and all of them uh, have taken on the development of liberal theory and its flaws. You know, Hobbes is kind of the first proto-liberal thinker. He's a social contract thinker. 
And then, you know, Locke is kind of like the quintessential classical liberal thinker. Um, Rousseau is somebody who's somewhat on the fence as uh, he's an enlightenment thinker, but he's also kind of romantic and he can see some of the dangers of, um, you know, classical liberal, the bourgeois mentality. And then with Tocqueville, you get a look at like, what does a French aristocratic thinker think about American bourgeois liberalism? And, you know, that helps me to like contemplate what it is about America. And through all these different books, I looked at, at this through the lens of honor, which is the same headspace that religion occupies in people's minds. It's, it's a motivation to do something that isn't about just your self-interest or fear. Um, but, you know, starting with Hobbes in the liberal tradition, you get this argument that the honor and religion are the two sources of conflict in the world. And this is such a problem that we have to put, that we have to eliminate the honor motivation and we have to privatize religion or keep it under our dominion or both in order to stop it from, ha stop them from having this inflammatory effect that causes people to kill each other um, over what Hobbes and Locke and other liberal thinkers tend to think is trivialities, you know, things of no consequence or um, things of personal choice. So, so by tracing their response to honor, um, you can also, and I do have chapters in most of those books on those thinkers, uh, take on on the Christian religion too, um, because they basically demolish it. So, I mean, one of the things that the Moran Academy tries to teach is there is no real compatibility between liberal theory and strong Christianity. Are you critiquing this in the sense of like, hey, it's incompatible with religion, but religion's true because we're Catholic, right? Um, and therefore, liberalism is, um, you know, needs rejected. Or are you like actually pushing towards like a modified liberalism? You know what I'm saying? Well, yeah, I do know what you're saying. I don't know if I have an answer. It's it's pretty easy to show that liberalism is incompatible with Christianity, even though there's a whole industry trying to prove otherwise. Right. right? That's that's what Christian nationalism is about. That's what, you know, John Courtney Murray and those people in the Catholic tradition is about. But, you know, I do agree with David Schindler that um, there is this just inherent incompatibility. And if you look at the liberal theorists, they work really hard to trivialize and sort of relativize people's religious faith. This isn't like a hard, you know, this isn't a hard like insight to gain if you really read them carefully. Um, so, you know, we we have to kind of admit that. Now, can there be some compromise with liberalism? This is the system that we have right now. Um, I don't think politically there can, but you can live within the liberal system and do what you can do within it. And you don't have to completely conform to the expectations of our society. It's difficult. Let me ask a question related to this. So when I was most interested in kind of libertarian thought, I was meeting a lot of like classical liberal, you know, just people who um, very much thought in terms of um, the non-aggression principle and property rights is like almost like a moral absolute. Like they weren't arguing for them from a pragmatic perspective. They were arguing for them 
from a like, no, this is just what right and wrong is. Right. And at the same time, they were atheist. Right. And I remember thinking, I don't see how you can have any ground for some universal right and wrong um, if all we are is just an evolved species that came up with a way to organize ourselves. You know what I mean? Like, I, I feel like you almost need some um, God in order to have this like universal absolute right and wrong. And when I would push them on this, they would point me out to Locke. Right. And I didn't read a lot of Locke, but I picked up the first book and he's like proving all his points by s- citing scripture, which made me think this man has not given up on the Christian God in a sense, right? Like he's, he's trying to make all his points and prove it to everyone by finding them in scripture. Right. So he wasn't a good source for a universal right and wrong, independent of God. So help, help kind of like clear up my confusion on that. Cause that, that was my experience with Locke. Okay. I'll try. Um, both Hobbes and Locke cite the Bible continuously throughout their books. Hobbes is arguably an atheist. Um, his presumptions about God are so scientific that he argues God out of existence and and twists the Bible to show that, you know, you can think you can still be a Christian and believe that God is some sort of physical entity um, that must exist in space and time that, uh, yeah, you know, because nothing that is immaterial exists. OK, so it's pretty wild, right? If you like read all of Hobbes Leviathan, even the part on Christianity, he he tries really hard he knows the Bible. They all did back then. It was a central text for anybody. Anybody who was learned knew about it. So, you know, he tries hard to basically conform the Bible to his materialism. It's a very extreme, radical materialism that, you you know, just precludes a great deal of what, what you and I no doubt would agree that we believe in. And then Locke is, is a little bit softer. Um on this, but in his letters concerning toleration, the argument that he uses basically makes almost every religious principle a matter of, quote, indifference. It is just, when it comes right down to it, maybe reason tells us that, um, you know, there's a first mover and God exists because things exist in the world, but as far as like exactly what we should believe and, and you know, how, how we should worship and so forth. That's matter of indifference. The only reason why he said um, he said we shouldn't tolerate uh, atheists, he said, because they you can't trust any of their oaths because they're not fearful of something to keep them in check. You can't trust Catholics and Muslims, according to Locke, because um, they have dual they have dual like citizenship. They they have two sovereigns, and you can't have two sovereigns. You can only have one. Um, you can't have an imam or a pope or else you can't be like, you can't be the good liberal citizen that you ought to be. So if you really, you know, look at Locke's logic regarding Christianity, even though he cites the Bible, his Christianity is either non-existent or very, very different than what ordinary Christians would would believe. So do you think they're kind of just proof texting for the sake of propaganda to convince someone who's believes differently than them, like to try to get a religious person to come to their side? Or do you think it was important in their mind to have these proof texts? They knew that they had to tackle it somehow. And I think that they were hoping that people, I mean, 
when it comes to texts like this, different people will, will see different things. That's part of the beauty of it, right? So like for the person who really wants to see Locke as a believing Christian, they can walk away and say, yes, you know, he is. Um, and it's okay, right? Um, for people who want to, um, you know, sort of delve a little deeper, they might find a different truth there. So I think that they, I mean, both of those fellows were like worried about persecution uh, if they were to take openly strident atheist views. But I think they were also concerned that most of their society was Christian. And so they had to address it, right? But they had to address it on their own terms. And I don't think it bothered them if people walked away thinking that they were still Christians. But nevertheless, their rationale is incompatible with an actual faith. I'd like to now kind of introduce this other topic that you're on. I want to, I think at the end, you're going to have to counsel me on my own political thought, and it might come back to this classical liberal issue. But um, you've also written a lot on the new right. Yeah. And I'll, let me like venture a definition of what the new right is and you correct it, or if it's not what you meant by it. But it's kind of like this new energy on the right that's not the historical Republican energy but um, maybe starts around maybe right before Donald Trump, kind of from that Breitbart type inner stuff that's going on. And is now, I'd say, many different things, many different kind of like people with ideas within that movement. But it's all kind of this energy on the right that's not um, the historical kind of Republican energy. And they'll critique the historical Republicans as uh, merely uh, liberals doing the speed limit. Mm, yeah. Is that about right? It's yeah, I think so. I think we have to remember that it probably really started back earlier, maybe even as early as the 60s and 70s, as far as like the seeds of it developing, um, you know, even with like, let's I don't know if you're familiar with Rush Limbaugh, but, you know, when the Rush Limbaugh show came on the air and it was so popular, he spent a lot of time kind of hammering at the more like establishment Republicans. And now he was a classical liberal thinker economically. But he was much more about kind of what we would now call nationalism, you know, patriotism, what it means to be an American. And I think he was very much against the elites. And there's a there's a big strain amongst the new right that's anti-elitist, right, that that sees both, uh, well, mainly like liberal elites in the media and in government and the deep state and so on. So I think some of the seeds were planted back then. Um, but you're right that like closer to now within the past decade or so with the, I think it's got to do with the ramping up of globalization, right? I mean, again, globalization has been around a while back in the seventies and eighties, we had people on the left and on the right who were like developing paranoia about globalization, like uh, on the left, you know, people who say things that you might hear from right-wing people now about the new world order. All right. So, um, you know, but as we move as we move into this new world where globalization is really affecting our our national economies in a major way, I think this is why it's become far stronger now. And that's why if you look at Donald Trump's rhetoric, you find him constantly hammering at globalization and at elites, right? In his in his campaign, um, in in like his announcement speech when he announced his his you know point of running for president. Um, he about half or more of the speech is about 
you know, uh, your jobs being taken away by globalized corporations who take their jobs overseas and so on, and about, you know, elites not understanding the common people. And and so, I mean, if people focused on his tweets, but if you look at what he actually said in his official speeches, you can see why, you know, people are attracted to him. What I've read from you on this movement is you see it as like, hey, here's a logical place where it comes from. Here's the social factors that feed into it. Mm-hmm. Um, here's the globalization causes, et cetera, et cetera. And then I guess you have this rise of Donald Trump, and like the actual political reality that came about due to these concerns, right? Yeah. But then I also see, though, a lot of just people who are fielding interesting ideas be there like, I mean... There's kind of an anarchist thinker on the new right I, I, I follow a little bit. There's this Curtis Yarvin figure out there who's also kind of interesting who says he's a monarchist. And there's all these like other people in this Moldbug. milieu. What'd you say? Moldbug. Moldbug. Yes. Minchus Moldbug. Right. And there's, to me, it's kind of interesting because I feel like there's a lot of, um, uh, to me, I don't see cohesion in the movement. Um, so I'm kind of curious, like, do you see it as like this sociological movement that more or less is cohesive or are you kind of more where I'm kind of at where I feel like there's, oh, there's a lot of little micro movements and they're all in this realm of being in the right, like some maybe overtly racist, some very much not racist or whatever the issue is, you know, uh, that um, are just that part of the right, which is against, say, the historic status quo right. I, I just think we're focusing on two different things. You're focusing kind of on the thought leaders, mm-hmm. and I'm focusing on what causes people to vote for somebody like Donald Trump or like Erdogan or you know, um, you know, various right wing um, people who who gain power. And it, it, it's many things, right? And it's many things that make them listen to some some folks like that, right? Um, so, like when it comes to what gets people to in mass like vote for somebody that, that an attempt to change the government it is these other you know these other factors that agitate them enough to the point where they're seeking those types of ideas and want kind of their marching orders and and the start to and this is something that you see a lot right is they start to think in terms of more or less conspiracy right that there's that there's like things, people and things going on behind the scenes, and it's not that they're not. There's there's a good grain of truth to a lot of conspiracy theories, but you know that and these things cannot be like tackled in any way other than like some sort of drastic change, right? So I'm I'm okay with everything you just said, and that I I think that's just a different conversation than to actually address all these different thinkers that are running around there. You know, some of them are interesting. I. I grant you, and some of them are quite reasonable, um, you know, and like the, some of the new right thinkers, uh, oh, I don't know, like even Alexander Dugan, the Russian, Hélène um, de Benoit, French right, new right thinker, um, uh, who f- was co-founder or one of the founders of the Nouvelle Droite, the new right in France. Um, they're interesting to read, and they're pretty smart, and they make some really good points. If everybody was kind of like on board with these sophisticated ideas, we wouldn't have like political problems. We could have political arguments that could be solved. But that's not the case, right? In any sort of mass movement in what ordinary people do, they don't follow those arguments and they don't listen to the reasonableness of intellectuals. <laughs> well, let's let's talk about it in the way that you're talking about it as like kind of the sociological political movement. Um, do you see 
any good that could come from it. Mm, yeah. I mean, yes. Right. Like, I think that this is a huge missed opportunity for the Democratic Party or for reasonable Republicans and other leaders to actually harness the energy of people who are dissatisfied with their conditions of life and address those, you know, the concerns that they have. You know, I mean, many of the people who supported Donald Trump and are, are still very angry are um, victims of the decimated rural environment that we have where, you know, nobody can make a living on their farm anymore unless they own like thousands of acres and there's no rural life to speak of anymore, you know. So I think that it's this it's this huge opportunity where people are really expressing their dissatisfied their dissatisfaction. It may be a really blunt edged instrument, but you know, if I were Democrats, for instance, I would have, I would have done very differently with this insight than they have done. Right. Which is basically to call these people stupid and to not take any ownership of, of the problems that have caused this. I mean, I'm speaking broadly, but you know, I'm, I'm really frustrated with that. And then Republicans just seem to be opportunity opportunists taking it for a ride without, again, without really addressing the problems that have caused it. I feel like addressing the problems that caused it is almost politically impossible. Mm, if that's the case, then we shouldn't have a democracy anymore. I'm worried about that. Yeah, I am yeah. too. But like we could be, you know, not that long ago, we did, you know, regulate the economy more. We did protect our industries to a certain extent. We did have programs that supported smaller businesses and smaller farms strong enough that they could be protected. I mean, the Morin Academy is interested in distributism for this reason. You know, like, in fact, I was just told by somebody from Canada today, she thinks it might make more traction, might get more traction in Canada because it's got a different culture than here. She thought some of those policies might be possible. We haven't broken up a monopoly since AT&T. We have laws on the books to break up monopolies. We, we could be doing some things that we're not doing. But like, for example, like this, like supporting a small farmer, like just one single issue, you know, not anything else, reforming anything else in our society. I don't see an interest that it'd be powerful enough to support that, yet I see interest powerful enough to defeat that. Exactly. You know? Well, that's, I mean, big money has taken over our political system. And that's where my fear comes from. I was, I've kind of been following the rise of this RFK Jr. guy, and um, he's interesting, and I try to imagine what it would be like if he was elected, and I imagine he would take on a few major federal agencies and make some meaningful reform. Probably, the, I think probably the USDA, the CDC, um, the EPA, those seem to be his most interest areas, right? And then like, but then somebody asked me to compare that to Trump and Trump is kind of giving the voice of, hey, I'll take it all on, you know? And it seems like that seems impossible. It seems like even RFK trying to reform three inst major institutions seems nearly impossible, you know, let alone taking it all on. I think they're just riding the crest of the wave. I don't think they're serious. Donald Trump didn't do very much. I, I agree with Donald Trump. I don't know if RFK is serious or not, but you're right on that. Yeah. About, I don't know much about him. I think a lot of people that end up like RFK get a little bit squirrely, for want of a better word, and that makes it hard for me to like 
take him too seriously. I have heard a little bit about him, but, um, but on the other hand, you know, like if they were actually serious, instead of just wanting to get elected, maybe some things could happen, but I'd, I'd like to see it. <laughs> but do, do you see any movement that in your words is actually serious? No, no. <laughs> I'm sorry, I, I can't help you out there. Not in, not in this country, sorry. not in this country. I mean, we are in a real syndrome right now, which is, which is why so many people are starting to talk about what can we do without, without working through the government system, without working through the political system, which is a very sad state of affairs, you know, when people kind of give up on it and ask that question. But as of now, I mean, we're so we're in such a deadlock between these two parties. We don't have a parliamentary system which encourages third parties and compromise. You know, um, that's why that's why the new right has kind of taken over the Republican Party is because there's not a, a system in which they could have their own legitimate party and then negotiate. But that's not the system that we have. And I don't, I don't know. I don't see a lot of. What, what is the work that you're doing with the Morin Academy with Spencer and who, who else is involved in that? And like, what is your goals with that? If that, is that an effort to help in some way? Yeah. Well, I mean, that would be a case of withdrawing, right? Like we're not trying to change the political system. We're not trying to change the overall economic system. We are trying to create something good within the context that we have and hope that we can do it without being harassed too much. <laughs> and we hope that we can create a model that might be replicable down the road when things get worse, if they do, due to climate change and economic and political issues, right? So like you can find these types of um, organizations everywhere in this country that um, are doing things in a different way that cannot, they're not viable right now as like something to take on as larger, you know, replicable way of living, but they could be if times changed. So like if you're in like the um, technology space and you have a new app, you talk about things like vi uh, virality and whether or not, you know, what is the hook on this app and how will it propagate, Right. Um, when I see efforts that are kind of small time efforts to live a different way, I don't see effort put into thinking about that, like virality, that spread idea, you know, they're just like, Hey, we think this is better. Like when you say yeah. that some days these may become very popular, I'm like, well, what's the plan? Like no one would fund a business if they just said, this is a better way someday it'll be popular. Well, I think it's going to be popular when conditions change, if that makes sense. Just as before, people did more of this type of activity because they needed to, right? Back in my dad, my dad's 96, and when he was growing up, people lived under the same roof together. They tended to take in their relatives. Um, people involved in churches, like, helped each other out. They helped each other with harvests. You know, they made sure Aunt, you know, Lizzie didn't just die alone. They, you know, they, they they cooperated, they grew things, everybody had a garden, et cetera, et cetera. Why did they do that? Because they had to, because the situation was such that it made sense. We are currently not living in that situation, but that's not to say that we won't someday. And now, it looks like the indicators are we will someday. Now, there are parts of the world, though, that like are kind of in that situation. Like we had a mission in Nicaragua yeah. and... 
they don't have old folks homes and they don't have this right yet when i look at what they're doing to sustain it also it doesn't look good you know it doesn't look like a model that i would wish that we would have here you know i think it depends on where you look um i don't i don't know latin america all that well but we do have a latin americanist in our um in the morin academy um who tells me that you know like village life is still alive and well in certain parts of latin america where you know the um i guess the outside economy hasn't come so far in or had such an impact that people have lost they haven't lost the like the traditions i mean part of what you're talking about is like once people lose those traditions and habits and you know skills frankly it's a lot of skills um it's not easy to get them back so there are areas where they still have those traditions habits and skills and they still function and then there's areas that are breaking down in the developing world where there's enough of the other way of life coming in that people are losing those traditions and habits and skills and and then it's very difficult to go back and, and in our society we're all the way on the other end of that and so when traditionalists say well you just need to get morality and you need to know you need to love your family and you need to you know like figure out how to help other people you're really asking for a lot right because there's no like memory there's no like habituation there's no like buy-in at the level of like traditions and cycles of life you know so you'd have to recreate it, which which right there means a sort of artificiality that people who are still living in a more traditional environment don't even know about. They haven't experienced that idea that, oh, we, we choose whether to take care of grandma or not. I don't know if that makes sense, but. I'm trying to wrap my head around it a little bit. Let me, let me ask you this though, and maybe we'll keep exploring this idea a little bit that so the Morin Academy is kind of your, and um, with your people who work at the, with the Morin Academy, it's kind of an idea workshop, right? Yeah. And I read something that was, you were writing about that, where it's like the Morin Academy is the idea workshop. It's named after Peter Morin, if anyone wants to know, who's one of the founders of the Catholic Worker Movement. Right. And then the Catholic Worker Farm that Spencer and Emily are running is the um, laboratory for those ideas. Is that a, a good way to put it? Yeah, at least some of them. I don't know about all of them, but yes, <laughs> it's kind right. of a real life experiment in, you know, whether people can cooperate under what circumstances. And you're seeing this like I was talking to a guy today who um, he's had to restore this like really old building. And through the process of, you know, working on the building, we were just talking about the stones on the building and um, none of the stonemasons he hired could properly set them because they were always setting them in concrete and, um, you, it caused all these problems because concrete expands differently than the stone. It was cracking all the stones and you had to use this lime mortar, which had the same expansion coefficients as the limestone, you know? And, um, while talking, we were talking about how there's like this group of tradesmen that built these beautiful old buildings that are just no longer with us. You know, and they aren't around to make YouTube videos on how to do it, right? There's like a great knowledge loss in America, I think, about making things, like even the manufacturing knowledge loss, right? Mm -hmm. um, do you feel that um, this like Catholic worker farm is partly about uh, 
recreating that lost knowledge as it pertains to agriculture, gardening, et cetera? Or do you feel like it's more about this, like, how do we reinstill new family values and taking care of the elderly, et cetera? You know, like, is it more like a laboratory of like, um, culture or more a laboratory of like, um, Hey, here's the survival skills you're going to need to have if global warming gets really bad, you know? I think it's both because you can't, um, one without the other, you can't really get by in, in anything but the type of circumstances that we have, you know? So I can buy, you know, whatever I want in the way of food as well as care. I can buy lawn care if I get, you know, handicapped, I can, I can get the assistance I need. It's, you know, it's, it's, it's all kind of wrapped up together. If, if I need assistance, other circumstances, I need people, right? I need relationships and community. So I, I don't, I don't really see the two as separable. I also need to, I need people around me who know how to get things done and how to grow food and supply themselves, you know, like those aren't two different groups and they usually would end up going together, right? Like you would need both of those things. You would need people cooperating to like provide whatever it was they did need. And definitely food would be one of those things. So, and the, I guess the way, I, I mean, in a nutshell, I think all of us can agree that when we look out into the future, like when I look at like, what's life going to be like when my son is 50? Right now he's 25, right? Well, he might be living in a world where both of those things are needed. And the only way he's going to get them might be if he knows how to develop relationships with people and learn skills and be adaptable. That's what we're looking at. That's the future that we're looking at. Now, if we're wrong, well, maybe we'll be happy about that. Um, you know, maybe it'd be nice to be proven wrong, but I think maybe our future might not be as cushy and plush as it is now, you know? Um, and so, uh, we need to provide the framework for how to handle that. Like if, even if we went into another great recession or depression, already we have tons of people around, you know, this, like Simple House knows this, that are like, just, you know, completely like, um, unable to care for themselves and resistant to cooperating because they're victims of, they're victimized by the society and the, and the economic system that we have. It's impossible for them probably to ever get to where we're talking about that level of cooperation, which is sad, you know, but, but moving forward, all we can think to do is Try to figure out what kind of framework might work, you know, and, and how to adjust it to where like people coming out of a system that's pretty liberal and pretty individualistic and private and so on, how they could possibly deal with cooperating with others. Because we're not talking about the way people were back when my dad was a kid. They're different now. And the level of like togetherness that might be required might be pretty hard for most people to take so how do you do it you know in a way that would work i kind of have a different view that I'll, I'll just share my thought right off it's like like when you compare the great recession to the great depression um one of the big differences i see is just how wealthy we are 
Sure. You know, like that the level of suffering in the Great Recession was almost like a uh, a psychological suffering more than a physical suffering compared to the Great Depression. You yeah, know? but you're assuming that that's going to go on forever, and that's not nothing goes on forever. I mean, look at the history of the rise and fall of civilizations. We're we're not an exception. They all decline. And and so, I mean, whether it's like rapid or whether it's slow, you can't this can't go on forever. And we do have like climate change in the mix here, and it really is causing us trouble. It is going to change who lives where, what can be grown where, what can be produced where. I think we're looking at some disruptions moving forward. So my, um, I was kind of going somewhere else with that. I think, I, I think I'm saying that, um, let's call it culture. And what I mean by that is like robust families, um, the ability to take care of one another, you know, um, the necessity of spending a lot of time and living much more intensely with each other. Right. Yeah. Um, I am someone who like grew up, in a, in a way that we did not spend a lot of time together. We didn't live that intensely. Like if my family, I, I say this with all respect to my family and my family knows we all kind of think this is true. <laughs> we would like have a really nice dinner together and then all go to our rooms and hang out doing whatever for the rest of the evening. And we'd think that was like living in community, right? Whereas like I've seen Catholic families um, and experience this where it's much more like, no, you have the dinner together and then you continue to be together for the next three, four hours. Right. And it's taken a lot for me to kind of learn that, you know, not having like that wasn't our norm, you know. Um, and I see that as you're kind of talking about that as that's going to be necessary for survival at some level, you know, or that's kind of the future in that way. Right. I feel like that's also like even if the survival isn't an issue, even if all future recessions look a lot more like the Great Recession, you know, um, that's necessary for living a rich life. It totally is. And yeah. we're seeing like suicide just kind of it feels like go off the charts. Like if I knew as many people who died of a certain type of cancer as I know who've died of suicide, I would be so alarmed about that cancer. I'd be like reading about it every day how to avoid it. You know? Absolutely. Yeah. And I, I agree with all that. Yeah. So anyway, it's just interesting. I'm, I guess I have the same idea that this like community and cultural healing needs to happen regardless of what happens to a civilization and economically, you know, even if prosperity does go on for another, however long. <laughs> and I guess what I'm saying, I, I agree with you. I think we need it. I think life is much more interesting, exciting with it and meaningful. And I'm not sure why it's so hard but I've just come to accept that people aren't going to do it unless they're forced to. So we can try to find some sort of way to make this viral, but it's not going to work. That's my belief is I don't, I don't think there's a way you can talk people into it. There's a lot of people who've been trying to talk people into that for, for centuries actually, but definitely, you know, in the past century, it's not just us, you know, and, and people have heard those arguments repeatedly, but when it comes right down to it, if you've got a room to go to, you're going to go to that room. And that's just the God's honest truth. So in my view, all we can really do is, and now some people are attracted to this way of life. Great. Let them come, you know? Um, but I don't, I don't think, I, I don't think there's any way that we can surmount that obstacle. 
Yeah, I guess I'm not, you know, as a Christian, I always view my um, duty as to like the people immediately surrounding me, not as like how to fix society, you know? And yeah. um, I, I, I see how my parish can be more intentional. I see how my nuclear family and I can give my kids the heritage of it. Right. And I see it actually happening. I don't, you know, I don't see it taking off in all society, um, hearing the loneliness that everyone's feeling, you know, but, um, I do see it, you know, at the local level, you know, and that's, and I almost feel like that is my call is to do that, you know, um, and almost like managing society seems like it's a task above the pay grade. You know, yeah, 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 um, it it really is, you know, but what you can do is attract the people who are kind of already seeking and wanting that. And I would say, like the Catholic Church is a great. I would like to see more and more done through the Catholic Church to foster this type of community beyond the monastery, you know, to like because we have these examples of monastic life where, you know, people go into them to make, they make these amazing commitments, you know, to devote their lives and to live in a very different way. And then we have the lay people and we do have like lay apostolates, but there's not a whole lot of people going into those lay apostolates, you know, right? Like they're an option, but they're a pretty obscure option. But I think there's like room for, for the lay apostolate idea to grow. And for the church to take a more active role in promoting different and various levels of this kind of thing, because we're more likely to do that than I think a lot of other types of Christians to do it. I think you're right. But when I hear you speak about it, it sounds like you're saying like, hey, we have this great community thing going on here and we need to figure out a way to spread it to the rest of society. And when I look at the church, what I see is that I feel like we... um made too much of a truce with kind of the modern way of being and that only now are we healing. And like, like I remember growing up just not knowing anyone at my parish, there were thousands of families at the parish and it wasn't really a cultural center or a center where we were bonding. It was a center where we went to receive sacraments, you know, like almost period. And it was, and now I see parishes where I, we hang out half an hour after mass. We have a Catholic sports league. We we're doing these things almost like we're re um, discovering it internally. What probably was what way more common in 1940. We're trying to recreate now, you know, and I, I guess I, I'm a little bit, and also, you know, the, with monasticism, it's like, well, monasticism's largely been dying out, you know? Um, I wish it, I wish it was working well that we could just like explode it into the rest of society, but we need to almost save it first or save our parish first before we go reinvent. It's been my sense. Yeah. Well, I don't, yeah, I wasn't calling on monasticism to grow necessarily, but just saying that we have this model and, you know, it is a heritage of the Catholic tradition that Protestants don't have. And why don't we, and we have the lay apostolates and they are quite, you know, like, you can find them. They're out there. Um, but we don't have a lot in between. I feel like, I don't know much about the lay apostles, but I've checked into a few of them. And I feel like they are like, if you're a really intense Catholic, you know, and you and you, you go to mass every day and, and, and stuff like that, you might be a candidate for the lay apostolate. Okay. But then there's all this stuff in between that people could be doing 
that's maybe more than just than which I agree with you. These are good things like go to the lunch and go to the you know go to the sports stuff. But like you know what's between the intensity of the lay apostolate and that, and is there room for like encouraging Catholics to do a little bit more cooperation with each other? That's well short of like monasticism. Do, do you, when you say lay apostolate, are you including the Moran Academy, the Catholic Worker Farm, Simple House, or are you saying some like Opus Dei type lay apostolate? Um, I don't, I don't, yeah. Like, uh, for instance, there's one in, um, some of them are associated with the orders and some of them are like not, um, but they tend to be, they're not, we're not lay apostolates because they're recognized by the church. As, okay, that's what you mean by that. Okay. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, right. I mean, we might want to be someday, but we would want to be in a more like fixed. I guess I I view things like the Morin Academy and Simple House as you know apostolic work by laity, and therefore I yeah, kind yeah. of view it as very much totally. you know the answer to what you're saying. All right, can I ask you now about these problems I'm having with political theory? I'll try. Yeah, go ahead. All right. And I want you to, I, I am like not read and not educated on this and you can feel free when necessary to just straight up correct me on issues. Um, what I see as like the major turning point is like the industrial revolution, you know, and I don't see that as like an issue of technology as much as it is an issue of like um, somehow dispersed uh, activity, like allowing in a sense, um, innovation to happen at smaller and smaller levels and planning to happen at a more dispersed level and somehow that being a big turning point. And I say that to say like, you know, there was about a billion people on the planet by the year 1800 and now there's like 8 billion, right? You know, it took like 1500 years to get out of the iron age, but it took like two, 150 years to go from the age of sail to like space navigation. You know, and I almost feel like if you took Aristotle or Aquinas or anyone and like took them to today and gave them a decade to get, you know, their feet underneath them, they're going to see that as like the most shocking thing. Not that we fly in space, but that like so much is being organized at such this kind of like you could call it an anarchistic level, you know, like this like like voluntary that like like in their day it was much more like the big public works were commissioned by the polis or the city state right and now we have just major things happening that are um you know just companies you know and when i see catholics or anyone try to reinvent what we are in right now like like with this idea of what society should be i'm like really skeptical you know, just inherently, because I'm worried that we're going to break this thing that feeds 8 billion people and shelters 8 billion people, you know, um, almost like, like, let's tinker, let's improve. We have to, or we're not going to make it, you know, but like when you're kind of this whole hog, Hey, new vision of the future, I'm like, Whoa, hold your horses, you know? And a lot of these ideas like the, I, you have a good recommend your, uh, covering of the David Schindler book, you know, politics of the real, right? Um, a lot of these ideas are like kind of based on a critique of liberalism. Mm -hmm. In a way, I don't know what to think because I do think it's those liberal ideas that led to the explosion that is the Industrial Revolution. Um, 
and I kind of think of it the same way I think of like, um, maybe the same way we were talking earlier about the new right. Well, there's a lot of thinkers, but then there's the movement, you know, and the thinkers are never really completely the movement. There's just like the movement has in a sense a life of its own, you know, and it's not like the people who wrote the constitution took John Locke and just made it the Lockean constitution, but they took a lot from him. Almost. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, I guess I'm thinking also like, um, you know how S Sir Isaac Newton is the founder of physics, basically the father of physics, but he's also an alchemist. Right. You know, so he's also got nutty stuff that he spent a lot of time on and wrote books on, you know, but he also wrote the stuff that created modern physics, you know, and I feel like a lot of these critiques of these liberal thinkers are like, well, yeah, okay. They were flawed and maybe you were completely right. They are anti-religion, but they also created the situation we're in now, like something in there had a lot of traction and maybe they didn't come up with it. Maybe it was, they were just codifying something that was already in the water, you know? Um, but something led to this explosion of civilization that happens at the industrial revolution. And like, it seems to me like almost like, well, how about you comment on that? Then I'll talk about my problem with this idea of trying to reinvent it all, you know? Okay. Yeah. I think maybe, um, in a way you're talking about extremes here. I, I don't okay. know too many people want to re reinvent everything, but I, I guess to address the industrial revolution and the whole point there, um, you're assuming that we're like really secure right now. Whereas there's another way to look at this where globalization has caused such interdependence that we're extremely vulnerable. For instance, um, Russia has decided it's going to um, not allow Ukraine to let its grains out to be sold to the world now as a part of that war. And that's like something like 13% of the world's barley supply, 10% of the world's wheat supply. It's going to raise prices. It's going to, you know, anyway. Even better examples, we now have multiple ways we've created to destroy ourselves. And pre-Industrial Revolution, we didn't. You know, like we're, we could be more perilous than ever before. The the liberal economy gives you the sense that you're really secure because you can get something at your grocery store, right? But um, but where did that come from? And if you were thinking kind of just at a practical level, wouldn't you want to know that the food is nearby, right? And not something that relies on supply chains from hundreds, if not thousands of miles and the economics of other countries that you don't even understand. So. We are, you know, the the pandemic kind of mildly taught us this lesson, just with ridiculously trivial problems by comparison to what we could be encountering. But, you know, like people couldn't get their toilet paper or their baby formula for a while, right? Now, like, you know, just square and quadruple that problem. And then, you know, so, I mean, from a national security perspective, from a common sense, you know, supply yourself with what you need perspective, it makes sense to protect your own country's industry to a certain extent. It doesn't have to mean complete withdrawal from the global economy, but it has to, it has to mean, uh, you know, the notion that economics is also a part of national security, you know, just like, just like we have to take into account what other countries threaten us with. I feel like I can agree with everything you're saying. And I even feel like your point's even understated. I mean, like, I feel like we have even more threats than the ones you're pointing out. I mean, like, we saw the pandemic and 
gain of function research on viruses and now AI and there's also nuclear weapons. There's all these things where this whole this whole structure that's supporting eight billion could disappear and be wiped out. Right. Right. So security is not very good. And everything you said, I could be completely for like, let's locally source all our agriculture. Let's build redundant systems and robust systems. And that would be a big improvement. I think that's great. I guess I don't know that that's what I'm critique. I I guess anybody who's advocating for those things, those seem like common sense, you know, Um, don't have any problem. Um, Definitely not for. I think I used to be for this kind of unmitigated free trade idea. And now I see that as a complete problem, you know, but um, my question though, is much more like these Catholic integralists or um, thinkers like a distributist even, or um, Spencer and I have had talks where he has this idea where he wants to reinvent where we shelter where we get our food, how we spend our time. It's just like, well, hold it, hold it, hold it. <laughs> no, like, let's, let's pause for a second, man. <laughs> um, but like with the distributist or the Catholic integralist, um, so by the way, for our listeners, Catholic integralism, let me try to sum it up. You could maybe comment. It's almost like that if, you know, theology and God is all true, it's actually above the state and should be above the state. And in a proper ordering of society, the church in a sense would be above the state. And there you go. Is that right? It's pretty close to it. Yeah, pretty close. But I think if Aristotle came back today and had been had time to like look around, he was a Christian, you know, which we all hope he would be if he was alive today. Um, I think he'd say, wow, you know, I know that the church is the instrument of change in all society. I know that the church is how God's, you know, work and will happens here on earth. And um, it appears that what the church is, is an organ that, um, helps breathe truth and life and goodness and beauty and joy into the world, you know, but I don't think he would conclude and it should run the world, you know, not because that doesn't at some intellectual level sound good, but because it never has, you know, and it never actually has. And if you look at the words of Christ, there's nothing in there that is like a great blueprint for doing it. Right. You know, it doesn't seem to be his main point when he arrives in the Roman empire. I, I I think I know better what you're saying now. Um, and, you know, our, our position on all of those things is that none of them can work in their purity. So like, for instance, when Spencer comes up with ideas about how people should live, he's not assuming everybody's going to live that way. But you have to like have ideals. You have to have, this is why they make a contribution, whether it's integralists or, or the opposite, you know. Uh, or any other type of idealist thought, you have to have like standards and ideals with which to compare the real world and also to give you ideas about what you could do, knowing full well that in practice you can never achieve those ideals. But if you don't have them and you don't talk about them, then you're just muddling through in whatever world you currently have and you can't really change it. I mean, is that real though? I well, you I mean you have to have ideals in your head in order to you literally have to have them in your head in order to propose things like simple house. So, you know, knowing that simple house doesn't change the whole world, but you must have in your head this idea that if people all were kind to each other and gave each other shelter and helped each other out and were Christians in that sense, the world would be a better place. But so, in practice, you can't do everything. So Simple House, so this is, I think your point is fine, and I'll just correct this about Simple House, though, but like 
it never was an attempt to change society. It was very much an attempt as personal, right. you know, let's just love the poor and like grow in holiness. Kind of the same idea of St. Francis, meaning like he wasn't trying to change the world either. He was trying to live radically the gospel, you know? Um, and it's, it's very much only a secondary point, whether or not it works, you know, it, it has to work for you, not for like changing society, I guess. Right. Um, but having said that, I think what you're saying is valid, but I feel like though, like, um, if, uh, like I can like say, Hey, I want more people to thrive. I want minorities to do better. I want, um, the problem of people living in stressed out fear in this neighborhood to be changed. Right. And I can have a value like that and then like promote policy actions that I think have a chance at creating that goal. Right. I don't see how I, I feel like it's a dangerous waste when someone goes to like an integralist position or even spends time worrying about it because I feel like I feel like there's a couple of dangers there and, and, and please defeat these dangers. But like one is that um, you're not dealing with like, in a sense, the reality we've been given by God is in fact God's gift to us. And this is kind of so outside the reality in kind of this, like, um, like it's almost like saying like, as an economist, you'd say there's all these agents and they have tastes. And then very quickly, the economist doesn't want to talk about taste anymore and just says it's profit motive, you know, but really the economic model would be more interesting if we had more complex thoughts on what the tastes were, you know, going into the model. Right. But I, I'm, that's a, sorry. Uh, there's this idea almost like if we could just reinvent everyone's tastes and we could change the way people relate and we could have a different culture and we could do this, then this would happen. Right. And it's like, why is that a useful well, it is the way people are and have been forever, forever. Right. So like, um, I don't know if we can change that. I guess I, I want to make it clear. I'm not an integralist, by right, the way, right. I mean, just in case somebody got confused. Sure, sure. But I do see like the, I don't know, the contributions of all of these people of one form of what I would call idealism or the other is that they, um, they, they make proposals that can then inform us right we don't have to take everything they say lock stock and barrel and try to even if they might dream you know that it might happen someday yes they're wasting their time to the extent that they really think they can 100% make that happen um not all of them do by the way i think a lot of the a lot of thinkers in the integralist position probably fully realize that their ideal can't become can you give an example though of like a piece we took from it that helped us from integralism? Yeah, we're, neither of us are integralists, but let's just use that as an example. Like, what what in their thought experiment is helpful? Um, I think the critique of our existing order is more helpful than their solution. So when they talk about, like, the, what the secularism has wrought on people's, like, souls and their relationships, um, they're on... I, I, I agree with you. With you. I agree with you. And I think that is very helpful. It also strikes me that's not integralism though, because integralism is the thing that would replace it. You know what I mean? But I do think that their critique is useful. Yeah. Well, I, you know, I mean, I don't agree with the idea that the church should run the state, but for fairly pragmatic reasons. Right. So if everything, if the stars could align and everybody could be Orthodox Catholics in the way that an integralist thinks they should, then maybe that would work, but it doesn't work. But I don't get very frustrated with 
people doing that, especially theorists, that's kind of their job, right? Like their job is to believe in their ideas and to propose those ideas. And then it's the rest of our jobs to take those ideas and use them for what they're actually worth and and to keep what works and throw throw away the rest. But without those ideals, we wouldn't be able to move forward. We wouldn't be able to think. We'd just be sort of relativists that just accepted whatever is. Nobody wants to do that, right? So I I, I, I agree. I, I think there's two great dangers, though. And um, one example is I think part of the reason why um, our civilization has been successful and we have all this diff- – I mean – like you said, there's problems with our civilization and there's risks to our civilization. But part of the thing that's been so successful is that um, it's not centrally planned. Um, like when we've had centrally planned economies, we end up having a famine, you know. Uh, and this dispersed planning has made this complex economy, society, political structure that's almost beyond anyone imagining it's almost like if if you have the kind of guts of a linen and say, actually, I could make it better than the way it grew up, you end up with like a tragedy, you know? And uh, I don't see integralists or the modern kind of what I think of as almost like utopian visionary. It's like doing what Lenin did. But I do see that like I'm seeing Catholics who have a long way to go to merely understand what it means to love your neighbor and to love others as God loves you and how that's lived both in family and at your parish and with the poor and all these things. And it's, it's very much like a personal request that works in the Roman empire in Nazi Germany in America and all these different things. And it's almost like a psychological and spiritual rebirth. I see that as the great work of Christianity. And yet I see really smart principled Catholics spend a lot of time on something like integralism and I think it's dangerous. And then I also think it's a little bit playing God the way Lennon played God. And I think that's almost goes from just being like a waste of time, dangerous to like sinful dangerous. And that's where my like kind of critique is coming. And having said that I am, I guess an idealist, I'm sorry. I do believe there are many ideals we could have without thinking that you can reimagine all society as like the ideal. Yeah. Okay. I don't mean to beat you up on this. I'm just trying to get feedback from someone who knows. Yeah. Yeah. But like, uh, you know, I, I'm not worried about integralists because there's such a tiny little, you know, minority of people that have no chance of ever, (laughs) you know, affecting any change whatsoever. So yes, their ideas might, if, if they could be like somehow brought into reality might be indeed scary. They might, we might have the inquisitor all over again. Right probably would. I mean, that's why they bother me is I see that impulse that you're talking about in their writings. And yes, they should like focus on maybe other things, but I'm not worried about them because they really are obscure and completely irrelevant. I'm not worried about them as a political movement, but a lot of my best Catholic friends think about it a lot. You know what I mean? And I'm like, we could like build the parish with that energy. You know what I mean? Like that's no, not that's, that's the right thing to be, you know, running your mind on. Like if it was one academic somewhere, okay. You know, <laughs> but yeah, I think it's, I think it's good to challenge them, but in the grander scheme of things, they're no threat to society. 
Well, you're right. They're no threat to society. They're and just I'm, as a political scientist, I'm always thinking about that. Like what not yeah, like from my perspective, both like liberal cancel culture professors as well as these integralists are such minor players in the scheme of things. I don't understand why 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 we focus on them, you know, like but we but but yes, like when you're trying to deal with them to get them to do something, heck yes. Like it's a kind of I don't know what do I say, like a syndrome? This is partly what my book, Ideological Possession, was about. Was, wow. You know, just you become kind of possessed by these ideas, and then you've got no, you're kind of disconnected from the real world at that point, and you can't, yeah. So these ideas don't really have a virality that threatens our civilization. But <laughs> what I see is like, like, so I deal with a lot of young people who want to be missionaries, right? And by a lot, I mean like, Eight a year, you know, and you know we work together. They are missionaries. I get I get a chance to talk to them and form them as missionaries, right? And what I see is that's unbelievable. And the good one person can do, and just helping other people's faith, um, including their own family and their parish and all that, and and maybe the way that I hope they go on from Simple House to keep doing that for the rest of their life. Love it, right? Great. Well, you know what I see the devil do is not tempt people to like lose their faith um, or to become complete jerks. He tempts people to become scrupulous. Yes. You know, or tempts them to become, you know, obsessed with something that's actually not God. You know what I mean? Like an integralist idea is something like that. Something that's not useful. Like a scrupulosity is almost inherently just an unuseful guilt that they're dealing with all the time. Yeah. And it, it takes them out of commission. It really takes them from being like in the life of the church, building it up to sidelined. It totally does. And it, it's basically the same phenomenon as the, you know, the red and blue sniping back and forth. You know, most right. Americans are unhealthily caught up in their, their like political party politics at a very kind of superficial, but still like psychologically satisfying level. And right. so. And it's also the problem of the Pharisees, right? Like from long ago, just the the folks that are just so hung up on the rules and the structure that they can't practice, they can't actually get down to business and live it. Yeah, and and it it's annoying. It's I don't know how you how you combat that other than just trying to like I, I jostle them back into reality and to a certain extent apply some shame, like to. So what are you doing? What are you doing? What are you doing? You know, but I don't know. Like it's a really hard problem. The line I kind of come up with is when somebody says that they're an integralist, it's like, do you think we need about seventy percent of society to be Catholic before we could consider that? Yeah, at least, like, right? like really Catholic, not not kind of Catholic, but really Catholic. And they'll be like, yeah, I think so. And it's like, okay, let's just work on how to get to that. You know, right? Yeah. Or the other one I like is when they say they're distributist. It's like. How many people are you willing to kill to do this? Because mm -hmm. okay. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's about what it takes. Yeah, right. Um, and and in that idea, I mean, that could inform policy, just right. like you know, just like capitalist ideology has informed policy. So could so could distributist. Doesn't mean though that we'd want to like you know somehow transform the entire country into this overnight. But I mean, our Friedman, you know, style liberal economics informed our policy. That theory, which is just every bit as utopian as distributism, has informed our economic policy for decades. 
And one yeah. could argue it's completely, it's it's delusional. We never have had a free market. What does that even mean? Politics well, is always intersected with our market, but we believe that it's a free market. And we've when we've made all sorts of policies that have basically amounted to neoliberal fragmentation of our public services on the basis of this theory. So we've already done it. So, you know, when we look at somebody like the distributists who are like, but we have a nerdy theory too, <laughs> you know, like it seems a little bit like we have to be a little charitable, I guess. And I guess I do distinguish between the distributists and the integralists as far as like the usefulness of the theory. <laughs> well, I, I do have like some anarchists and a libertarian thinker that I follow that like, I find like if I was president, I would have them in my office once every two weeks to comment on every policy because I find their commentary often very good, you know, but as soon as they start telling me their vision for all of society, I'm like, oh, give me a break. You know what I mean? Like you guys can go away, you know? But I think that that could be true of a distributist because I do like the general principle. The thing, though, about this like free market stuff that like Milton Friedman represents is uh, there are powers and incentives behind it that make it politically like um, viral in a sense, like it, it like like really push it forward because there's groups that would really benefit from that, you know. Whereas like when you get something good like distributism, it could be like, well, all society might benefit. But no one benefits enough individually to push it hard enough. Mm -hmm. yeah, you know, and, and then I get to kind start of a labor union, you know, like that's why right. we can't do that anymore either. It's just not enough in the person's immediate self-interest. And, that's and it's also why some labor unions get co-opted by mafia, because they figured out a way to make it super profitable. Mm -hmm. Well, I don't know what the answer is here, but I... I tend to think that those ideas are healthy for our society, including integralism. I, as a professor, I think that we need to have an open discussion of all ideas and then let people sort them out. I guess I'm a liberal to that extent. I do believe in the free marketplace of ideas. And I think that that's partly how we've gotten this vibrant, you know, economy to the extent that it's good that we have is by people being free to do that. And one thing I see now is a lot of people wanting to shut other people down, right? Like don't want you to, um, you know, talk about this or that theory, particularly like whether, you know, like some people, if they see the word marks become practically, they get the hives, you know, like when I, I, I was, I, I was, uh, educated Austrausian, every one of my professors, I had one conservative Catholic, and two other, two other uh, political theory prep professors who were neocons, okay? But I took a class on Marx when I was in grad school that was taught by one of the neocons. Why? Because he thought we needed to know about it and we needed to understand it and that certain elements of it were actually somewhat worth, you know, incorporating into our own way of thinking. And so this is, you know, another kind of disturbing trend I see in our society is we're so like religious about our ideas, you know, that we want to exclude anybody who doesn't agree with us. That kind of goes down another rabbit hole, but that's that's really kind of bothering me right now. Is there anything else you'd like to add, uh, Dr. Worry, before we uh, call this a podcast? Um. I don't know, just like uh, encourage people to check out the Morin Academy. It's um, 
pmaurin, P-M-A-U-R-I-N.org, if you want to look at our website. Um, and uh, we have a Patreon. So, uh, you know, join us on Patreon and support our activities that way. We've got a class coming up on Wendell Berry's The Unsettling of America um, that Spencer and I are going to be doing uh, together in, I want to say, September, might be October, I can't remember, but it's on our calendar. Um, and we have a lot of things going on, including a communal reading group, which is right now reading Schindler's Heart of the World Center of the Church. That's our first book. Um, so anyway, like, check us out. And um hopefully support what we do. Well, Dr. Lori Johnson, I want to say that I really admire you. I admire you because I've just seen a lot how you engaged you are with students, you know, and even just being part of this Catholic worker farm of a former student. And I just am very impressed by all that. I'm very impressed with your willingness to like have conversations and get out there on the internet. And also um, I love that you and Spencer although you are idealists and value that really also value just like testing those ideas on reality. And I just think that's wonderful. I really want to thank you for being on our show. Thank you. And I appreciate what you do as well with simple house. It's really amazing. So appreciate your time. All right. God bless. Thank you, Dr. Laurie.